Dan's working working the beard. Did you get the beard oil? Beard oil or no? I have beard oil, but beard oil doesn't. So I've I've started. Everyone was like, "Oh, get beard oil, get beard oil." But I got beard oil, and beard oil is just for like making your beard softer and like exfoliating your skin. You really need like beard wax to like actually mold the beard. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. We were watching TV and someone else with uh, with a beard was on. My wife was making a comment. She's like, his beard's really shiny. I said, I'll have to ask Dan about that. <laughs> Mark, we got absolutely destroyed last night at a neighborhood meeting. Oh, no, you were texting me. Tell me more about this. So we are proposing a... Well, we were, our original proposal was a three-family with three off-street parking spots on a 3,400-square-foot vacant lot and in Dorchester. Seems and, decidedly reasonable. Continue. Good thing. Continue. And everyone was opposed to it. They said it was too big. They said it was too boxy. They said it was too modern. So we changed the entire look of the building to make it more like a like a traditional triple decker, and you two know, and a half, two de- and a half story. Decre- decrease the size. No, not that, not yet. Decrease the size of the building. Still didn't like it. So then we then they were like still too big, still too much density. Blah 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 blah. So then we went from a smaller three family to a two family with four off street parking spots. And they voted against it last night. On the flip, Sorry, on the flip side, we had three for it. Well, <laughs> a twenty-four against. I think that final uh, tally. A wise man once said, "The only thing people like are parks and parking." They actually told us that they wanted us to build a playground there. Parks and parking, and that's that's a perfect transition to introduce our guest today, Mike D'Angelo, MDLA Landscape Architecture. Welcome. Welcome. That is a great intro, Mark. <laughs> oh, smooth. It's, you said MD, MDLA? MDLA, Michael. So not like not million dollar listing Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> Very creative joke, name, man. Michael D'Angelo, <laughs> Landscape Architecture. <laughs> did, did you have any reservations about naming the company your own name? Or is that uh, like... Of course, yeah. I went through the whole branding exercise and just, you know, when you look at all the, a lot of the art firms have the same kind of initial thing going. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I mean, it's your face on the company. So it makes a lot of sense. Are there other MDLAs out there that do like other things? Oh, yeah, of course. Do you have MDLA.com? I have m dash. <laughs> D-L-A.com. Nice. <laughs> cool. You ever go to get a domain? And uh, I know this is kind of a tangent. You get, you're looking for domains for something and then it's like taken and some person wants like $4,000 for it. It's like, they're never going to get that. That was a big business at one point. MDLA.com is available for sale. I'll send you this. Uh, yeah, how much do they want? I bet you they want like four grand for it, right? It might be. It's probably you know, like Maryland... Legion something. I don't know. Stuff hey, it's, a, it's a business expense. It it's is. Tax, it's it tax is. season. If my competitor is smart, they can take it and they can have a redirect right to their website. Yeah. <laughs> Sons of bitches. So what does MDLA do? So we're, uh, we're based here in Boston. We're landscape architects. We have five employees total. We have two actually working out of the Connecticut office. And you know, they've been there since before COVID. So we've, we've been, we're used to this remote working thing. And we focus on all sorts of uh, landscape architecture projects. So single family residential, multifamily residential, 
Uh, we do a lot of suburban office repositioning work. So, you know, for instance, we have several projects right now where a, a office landlord might have a single tenant that's moving out and putting in, making it a multi-tenant building. So they asked us to, you know, look at how we can get two entries into the building and redesign those entries. We also do a lot of amenity space design for those office parks. Do a lot of roof decks here in Boston. We just got a golf course in Florida, which is really cool. Unique oh, project. Cool. Um, so yeah. you design, you're designing the, the whole golf course? So my, my partner, Nick, in Connecticut, his passion is golf. And he's always wanted to be a golf course architect. Very hard thing to break into. And he, we caught a break. He, <laughs> we were doing uh, some, some very significant re- renovation to a course. Is it mini golf or is it a real golf? <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Are they looking to be like a pro tournament kind of stop or I, cause I don't know anything about professional golf and if they add no. or move places like stadiums no, I, almost. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a, it's a renovation of an existing course. Um, I think it'll be very nice, but yeah, I don't think we're going to host the uh, masters. <laughs> Do you negotiate anything in your, in your fee or your contract whereby you can play, bring guests we did have a locker. That's pretty good. That's pretty smart. We missed that one. What goes into a good design, right? Like I feel as a developer and as somebody who kind of has a green thumb, I used to have, you know, a garden and all this other like hippie type stuff. I had a good feeling for it, but I'm sure anything I do would just be blown out of the water by what, by what your firm would do. So what, is there like a key to a success? Are there ratios how do you make it a good design? How do you come up yeah, with your that's ideas? A good, that's a good question. I think it's a I think one of the most important things is listening to the client program. You know, if it's a residential client, for instance, they really understanding how they're going to use the space. You know, if you, you can't just sit down and start drawing without really understanding how it's going to be used. And same goes with a you know an office developer or a multifamily developer. If we're working on a roof deck project for a multifamily building really understanding how that space is going to be used and what the client wants from a, a sales standpoint, I think is, is what's going to help you have a successful design. So, so my question is, is what goes into landscape architecture? Like what's the purview? Is it everything exterior wise or are there certain aspects of a project where you kind of handle things, certain components or, or certain pieces? Every project's a little different. How much involvement the landscape architect's going to have, you know, on most projects, the landscape architect will handle, you know, basically everything outside the building with the exception of some of the things the civil engineer is going to, there's a lot of overlap with the civil engineer. You know, if you're an owner and you're, you're looking at contracts for a civil engineer and a landscape architect, you really have to pay attention that there's not going to be that overlap. So the landscape architect will typically handle all the hardscapes, the planting design, the fine grading, and on the roof deck, there's also kind of a little bit of that overlap as well, because we'll be asked a lot of times to design, you know, the deck on the roof, basically any of the finishes on the roof. And there may be a little overlap with the architect there. When it comes time to value engineer and we're but way over budget, are your feelings ever hurt if your scope is, uh, is taken or attacked first? No, it's pretty, I'm used to it now. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're the first ones to go. Not always, but usually I think that's the easiest place to cut back. But no, my feelings aren't hurt. But some people, they definitely have their feelings hurt when that happens. Yeah, so, you, I got to give you a compliment. You, there's like no ego. Mike's like, no, I get it. Like, but you're, you're pretty efficient in your design from the outset. So. Yeah, and I'm willing to 
I'm usually willing to help, you know, right off the bat. Like I want to be the one leading that discussion. Whereas on some projects, the GC will go ahead and try to have that discussion without us. And I feel like it's way more efficient if you get us involved and we could kind of tell you where, you know, where we can cut without having to get removed large pieces of scope. Maybe we could change finishes. Maybe we could reduce plant size rather than, you know, eliminating entire area. Yeah. I mean, just to step back, VE stands for value engineering and true value engineering isn't going from a Rolls Royce to a Honda. It's more like you have a Rolls Royce that, uh, you know, may have a way oversized engine because any road that you drive on only allows you to go 60. So you can go to a V8 and never see any difference in performance. I think that word is often misused because what ends up happening is they're just like, yeah, we can VE this scope. We'll just delete all your trees. Yeah, yeah. A value engineer is not removal. Or we'll replace all of your trees with flowers. Yeah. (laughs) So with that, Mike, give us some good examples of of value engineering, stuff that you think like, no, hey, look, we don't have to use this. We can use that. And I think it looks pretty good. Yeah. So, I mean, a good example of that would be if you're doing a large area of, say, pavers. Pavers installed could run, you know, between like $35 and $50 a square foot. So instead of, you know, the first thing a contractor usually says is, oh, let's just do stamped asphalt or stamped concrete. (laughs) I say, you know, there's a better way we could look at, you know, maybe just reducing the side, the area of that, those, those pavers. I really like using a sawcut concrete. I'm not a big fan of stamped concrete. Maybe introducing some color into the concrete. So there's creative ways of value engineering rather than just saying, hey, let's get rid of all of it. Have you seen stamped asphalt? Oh yeah, yeah, I have. We city did bought the standard in the city of Boston. It's awful. They use it for the crosswalks here, right? They use it for um, the decorative strip between the curb and the sidewalk in some neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. No, but like, have you seen it being used in a residential setting on like uh, a single family home? No, I haven't. My in-laws were convinced by their <laughs> asphalt company that did their driveway to do it on their walkways as well. <laughs> doesn't you look knew, great does yeah. not look great <laughs> you knew there was a reason he was asking <laughs> does not look great are they yeah. avid listeners of the real estate addicts they podcast? are not <laughs> but, but i've told them it doesn't look good anyway so they know i'll, I'll have to keep that in mind for uh the value insurance really tough <laughs> what what are your thoughts on I've seen, you know, you see so many things on Instagram and I swear the thing listens to you. What are your thoughts on some of these like apps now or these like online places where you take a picture of your backyard and they're going to virtually design something for you? Is that just like cheesy and, and ineffective? I just don't see how that, that could bring you any real value. I mean, you have to be, you have to go meet the client. You have to spend time with them. You have to see the site. Yeah, I mean, I think they offer that for interior design services too. And I think to some degree, it might be a little easier with that. But when you're dealing with the outside and topography and natural features, I think it's a lot harder to be successful with that. Yeah, but like, how does that app pick up on like grading and drainage and all that? You don't know. Exactly. Right. So obviously, as you know, doing development in kind of the urban, you know, setting, Landscaping isn't a massive line item on a lot of our budgets, but what's tip, the typical threshold as to when your services should be engaged? How big are the clients that are coming to you in urban areas? You know, is it like a 
standard three family? Is it a, a 10 unit building? Like what, is there a certain sized project or is it more so in terms of the scope of actual green space versus everything else? Yeah. So it depends on the project type. So on a single family residential project, I'd say the minimum job we'll take for construction value would be like $100,000 to $150,000. But we do a lot of permitting work in the city for developers like, like you guys you know, just need a plan to get through the permitting process to show that, you know, to show the neighbors, to show the BPDA, to show whatever regulatory agency requires or wants to see it, that you're making an effort to really make a great exterior presence, make make a great public realm space. You're seeing that a lot now where, especially in the city of Boston, smaller developers are utilizing our services and landscape architect services, even if we're only doing a few, even a few trees. Because it, I think it's very valuable to the, um, you know, to the, the neighbors and to the city to see that. So in, in, to answer your question, the value of the landscape and that uh, for a job like that doesn't really come to play. We're providing I'll that. permanent drawing. I, I agree entirely. So Mike and I have been working together for 10 years in we start in that format. And when you're in front of those neighborhood groups and everyone's very concerned about this tree or how the barrier and the screening between your property and the next is going to be handled, you know, Mike's really good or landscape architecture firm in people have poor imaginations. So just a basic rendering or a planting plan to give people the confidence that you've really thought through this and you're not just going to go to the Home Depot and grab a couple shrubs, I think helps your chances of success immeasurably. So Dan, maybe you need, uh, you need Mike to come back with you on that two family or three family. <laughs> I don't know if that might be beyond repair at this point. No amount of trees. No amount of trees. Well, <laughs> no, I mean, how, how about for like, uh, I don't know if there's too much of it, but parking and trying to do like screening and that sort of thing. So, and I know a lot of especially maybe in Somerville or Cambridge, you have to hide the the meters. So you don't want to put something that's going to, you don't want to put like an arborvitae or something that's going to grow like crazy right next to it. So it's obviously important to pick different species. And do you do a lot of things like that where you're hiding things in, in these dense areas as well? Yeah, absolutely. It's very important to yeah, pick the right material in the city. It's difficult because you you're dealing with a lot of shade and a lot of tall buildings, but you, you need to find the right material that meets the requirements of that particular you know, zoning bylaw that requires those types of screenings. But going back to our earlier point, I think, you know, bringing on a landscape architect early in the process to work with the city, the, the city and work with uh, neighborhood groups, I think is, is very important. Shows good faith. It's just like, it demonstrates that you're going to do the right things. You don't have to. I mean, I think most guys doing a six unit building might not have come to the community meetings with their landscaped architect along with their architect. But I'll tell you what, Mike will take three or four slides and get at least a third of the questions because it's one of the things people are very concerned about. Yeah, you're dealing with the exterior of the building and how the neighborhood's going to perceive that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever do soil tests if you're planting to see like is the soil even compatible or is it pretty well known in the specific geographic areas? Yeah. And the larger jobs, that's typically a similar request. So the contractor will go and take a sample of the soil and send it to a lab to be tested. And they'll send back the results to us to review against the specs. How dirty is our soil here? 
Is it bad? Should we have like these backyard gardens? <laughs> I'm sure it's pretty dirty. <laughs> <laughs> so no comment. <laughs> Don't plant that garden. Do the raised bed. <laughs> Mike, talk to me about pedestal pavers. Have a very specific need on a current project. So what are my options here? Pedestal pavers, can you explain the concept? And uh, yeah, w- what should I be looking out for? What kind of costs? What are my options? Yeah, so what Mark, Mark is referring to is a roof, de- roof deck application where you have you know, a structure below. It could be a garage, it could be a building, and you need to put a hardscape on top of it. So typically they do that by putting the pavers or decking on pedestals, raising it up to allow water to flow underneath. Um, so yeah, your options, Mark, are, are precast pavers. You could buy panelized segments of decking that are you know, made into panels that are two by two or two by four. You can build a deck on top of a sleeper system. And then they also sell porcelain tiles now that can be put on pedestals for roof decks, which are really nice. What's nice about the pedestals is they're adjustable too. So if you have a tapered roof, quarter inch per foot slope, you can keep your roof deck level vis-a-vis the adjustability in the pedestal. How is the pedestal secured to the roof? It's just weight. So you set up your pedestals, typically four per paver, and the paver holds it down. In a really windy application in certain areas of the city, they may require that the the paver is attached to that pedestal. Oh, okay. So the the pedestal isn't actually... You know, you don't adhere the pedestal to the EPDM or or no. roofing membrane at all. No. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, that's crazy. And that and that wow, that doesn't have like any uplift issues. No, it depends. It all depends on, the, on where you are. Yeah. How about are green roofs? Yeah, I was going to ask that. <laughs> Which what roof? Like what goes? I thought green roofs were like this. I'm going back ten years. Everything was about green roofs. Everyone was talking about them. There were all the buzz. And then I sort of never really saw many get, if any, get built. But I understand that the technology has come a long way. So what are your thoughts here, Mike? Yeah, so te- yeah, you're right. About 10 years ago is the big thing. Everyone, everyone was talking about green roofs. I believe the city of Chicago made a mandate that all new buildings had to have green roofs. And now at that time, it really was. A lot, a lot of people were talking about putting them on their buildings and also at that time, you know, people were really moving back into the city so that we were seeing a lot of developers put roof decks just in general on their buildings. But green roofs themselves, they are very popular still. Um, basically, you know, it could be as little as two inches of soil with sedum rolled out on top of it. Or it could be as much as two feet of soil, which you could plant shrubs in and make it look like it's a, a landscape that you'd find on the, on the ground. So the term green roof is, you know, it's really just a, a roof that has plantings on it, vegetated roof. Anecdotally, I understand that if dogs are to be allowed on the green roof, then the drainage needs to have very special considerations. It can't be because dogs are going to pee and they don't want that waste to be captured back with the rest of just the uh, runoff, uh, typical drainage. So you'd have to tie it into your sewer stack and it's, uh, it's a whole additional cost yeah and you have to worry about odors and you know the wear and tear on your rubber membrane so yeah there are a lot of considerations when you put a dog park on a roof which many developers have recently what are some things that for a typical roof deck other than just building the deck with the decking material or whatever from a from a green standpoint or 
what are some things that we as developers can do to set ourselves apart from other developers that are just doing throwing a roof deck on there? Are there certain like planting beds or, or boxes that we can be building to create more of like a privacy slash green space up there? What are, what are some things that we can do to set ourselves apart? Yeah, I think, you know, rather than, rather than just coming up, going up to the roof and putting down a deck, which a lot of developers at the smaller scale are doing, I think you could, you could build in some custom features. You could build in, uh, instead of doing a, a railing, a, your typical railing, do something a little, a little nicer. That's maybe a solid screen of, of wood, build, build in some, some planters uh, where you could. So there's ways to, to make, the, make the areas look a lot, a lot nicer than your standard deck. Are there ways to screen or buffer for acoustical concerns uh, using plantings and, and even on a roof deck? Yeah, we have we have one client in the South End, a private client that was very concerned about the noise coming from the AC units next door. So we, we looked at different ways to, to buffer that noise for him. And we tried a mix of um, bamboo planting, but also we, we found a company out of Colorado that came and installed it for us actually a sound barrier between the AC units and the, the unit itself on the back of a wood screen wall that we built. And it absorbed all the sound from the, uh, the AC units. And it was, it was pretty effective. So it's, it's really tough to, to capture all that sound that's coming up and over the screen wall. Mm-hmm. So those screen walls are really only effective for capturing sounds that are adjacent to them. So you're never going to get rid of the police sirens and the ambulance <laughs> sirens, but you may be able to reduce the sounds coming from your AC units. Are there any, do you ever have concerns of other than, you know, I know we've already talked about wind and the pedestal system, but, you know, plantings up on the roof themselves, like are there certain height restrictions or certain things you should look out for when putting vegetation on your roof or those types of screening walls that, you know, just will act as just, you know, the, the wind will just hit them pretty yeah. hard. Yeah. So roof decks are, are pretty complex here in Boston. So the first thing we do when we get a client that wants to do a roof deck, especially in an existing building, is we hire an attorney that is going to get us through the whole uh, ZBA process that's going to be required. Mm-hmm. And I explained to the client in detail that this is going to be a, you know, a long process to go through this a long, difficult process. And we need to hire an attorney. So we could all understand what's happening. <laughs> and once we get through that and everyone's on board with the time and money commitment involved, we go ahead and we hire a structural engineer to analyze the existing roof to ensure that it could actually support what we're thinking about doing. And that includes also wind considerations. So you can't just go and you know bolt a screen wall to your roof and hope it works. We have to look at, um, is the wind gonna, is this gonna cause a major wind issue? Yeah, is it, is it placed over a structural beam? So it's very important to do all this due diligence before we, we get into any design with uh, with the client. So roof decks are great; they're fun, but you really have to know uh, what you're getting into, especially here in Boston. How about outside the city? It seems like you could have unlimited possibilities. So what's what's one of the craziest, most elaborate designs you've ever done? So, and this might segue into the COVID conversation, but our residential work is really picked up since uh, since COVID. And a lot of clients are saying, you know, we're spending all this time at home. We want to make our outdoor space amazing so that we can 
we can get friends and family to come over again and we can hang outside and we can utilize all of this outdoor space that we have. So we have a couple really amazing single family projects right now. You know, one, they're taking it to kind of the extreme where we're putting in 26 uh, natural gas heaters throughout the property and we have snow melt, you know, everywhere. So that <laughs> these people snow, are single-handedly <laughs> causing global warming. It's <laughs> like... This isn't a, like a, a little one person gathering either. I take it. This is like the whole family's over. This is just well, yeah, a party. I, think, I think the idea is, you know, we, how could you utilize all of this extra space you have outside um, for the least most of the fall and part of the spring. And if you have a lot of kids or you have you know, elderly parents that live nearby and you want to have them still hang out. I mean, when it's really cold, it's really cold. I don't think the heaters are going to help, yeah. but I think it does extend the, the usefulness of, of these spaces. And it's pretty cool to see, you know, that particular job, we have the, the heaters, we have the snow melt, we have multiple fireplaces, and we also have um, a cold plunge pool, which is also could be used as a hot tub. So it's, the, it's really a full resort living in their backyard. The standalone propane heaters, are, they, they work really well. Like I bought my dad one for Father's Day a couple of years ago like one of the propane ones. And if you're outside in October, end of October, early November, and it's, you know, 40 degrees out and you have that thing cranking, you can definitely sit comfortably, you know. I'll tell you what doesn't work is the propane mosquito repellents. No. I used to have one of those when I was a kid. Didn't do anything. My I parents had one on. of them. I just get bit to shit. I'm like, what the fuck? My parents had one of those too. I was like, yeah. this is going to be amazing. I'm going to be able to do everything outside at night. And you just get, you just get eaten alive. Like what are, what are the most common questions you get asked? Like what's the best time of year to plant grass? What, what tree will do well? What are, what are people like when you're out socially, what are, what do people come up to you and they're like, Oh, you're a landscape architect. Yeah. It's questions like that about their gardens and about, yeah, what kind of plant in my backyard. Those are basically them. <laughs> when, when is the best time to plant grass? Yeah, actually, that was we've we've gone back and forth on this debate all the time. We've seen people rolling out sod in the middle of the winter on TikTok and Instagram. So, well, yeah, are you talking about sod, like hydro seeding, or sod, or or both? Because I feel like I've seen people doing work. I've seen like state departments doing work on the highways, and you see them blasting the hydro seed in the middle of the winter. Yeah, and one of Mark's jobs, they're actually shoveling the the earth to put down sod. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm of the opinion that you're, you're better off planting everything in the spring. I mean, a lot of times on these jobs, you're going to be pushed against a, a deadline. You know, they're going to want to try, the contractor's going to want to try to install all the plants that winter or that, that late fall so that they don't have to come back in the spring. It happens a lot. And also, there's also the times where they want to plant during a heavy drought in the, in the summer, in August. And, you know, they just want to get out of there. So they do it. But yeah, I think ideally you want to plant in the spring. You're going to have the most availability at the nurseries. It's not going to be picked over. Uh, if you go to the nursery in the fall, it's just not good. How do warranties work on large landscaping jobs? You know, if my refrigerator breaks, I know the day it was installed and I know the day it stopped being cold. But a plant may have a little more gray area as to like when it died, when it started dying. Did I cause it to die? Do you see, do you get involved in such disputes? Yeah, all the time. The way, it, way the way it works is on big commercial jobs, you typically have a one-year warranty on the plant material. 
Mm-hmm. So from the time that we accept it, so if we accept it in the spring, they have a warranty on that material for an entire year. And basically, you know, we'll come back at the end of the year. And if there's anything that's dead, we'll tell them they have to replace it. And hopefully they're doing that without us telling them. But that's, we usually have to tell them. And what if they didn't take care of it all year? That's part of it too. They're supposed to maintain it. They're supposed to go and pick up shrubs that may have fallen over and weed and mow usually as well. A lot of nurseries like will, like nice nurseries will warranty stuff that you buy from them too, right? You know? Right. So a lot of that's built into the contractor's cost. You know, yeah. if the contractor doesn't have to replace anything, then they they do well. But it, it, if they have to replace a few things, it's built into the cost. They generally speaking, not always, the nursery will will, will cover that cost for them. Cool. Watch this old house? Yes. How do you feel about Roger Cook? I think, I mean... <laughs> I'm more of an Norm Abram guy. I'm not going to answer that. Really? <laughs> no, Roger, Roger, Roger seems like a great guy. It seems like it's a different business than I think what we do, but he seems like a, a legend. On I'd like to have a house. beer with that guy. If he's listening, I'd be a fun, you know, when we can do things like that again. I got this. I said, they say I'm a Norm Abram guy. I grew up watching this old house. My father is a carpenter. So I remember getting his, uh, his autograph on a piece of wood when I was a kid. just like a a piece of two by four speaking of this old house tom silva is killing the social media game i his tiktoks are amazing his tiktoks are hilarious he must employ somebody to like help him with this stuff he's my father's age and he's like uh, hysterical it's very very entertaining i gotta check that out do you have does mdla have a tiktok account uh we don't i think we just missed that at at my age, we just missed that. It's like Dan's favorite I'm subject, pretty, TikTok. I'm what pretty, about Clubhouse? Uh, what, uh, that was my next question. Mark, are you getting into the Clubhouse game? I Last night, my, uh, my first time, first timer. How um, was I really thought it was cool, you know? I wish that there was a little more, like, engagement and interaction from the folks in the room. But um, I get it. It reminds me a little bit of like, do you remember, not that it was, we were alive when this was a thing, but hearing about like party lines when you used to like pick up the phone in your house and you could like hear everyone on your street talking. I don't know. I have no idea what that is. You don't know. Do you guys miss this in history class? This was a thing. (laughs) I didn't know that. Yeah. History class. Yeah. We talked about this. This was like US history one. I don't know. I'm making this up, but. I was was invited. Should I join it though? I was invited like by somebody. Yeah. To Clubhouse. It's exclusive. Ooh. All right. I didn't even know what Clubhouse was. I was looking this up. So help me understand this. It's basically you can just drop in and listen to other people's conversations. Like if we were on Clubhouse right now, we could have this kind of going live and get people listening in. Is that fair? Or am I? Yeah, we'll do a Clubhouse someday this week. We'll so do real so are we going backwards? Because I thought the whole idea of podcast was it's convenient and people can listen when they want. Or are just so many people at home with nothing to do. They're they're like basically going back to the cable TV version of radio. Well, it's like two way, right? It's like wa- imagine watching TV and being like, "Wait, I don't know what the hell Savatsky's talking about about this party line thing." And you just virtually raise your hand, and then I can buzz you into the conversation. You're like, "Mark, what? That is not true. You just made that up." And then <laughs> the host responds. It's inter- it's much more interactive. Yeah, got it, yeah. got it, got it. And got I think it. that's part of the appeal. But um, all right, question. Bluestone versus precast. And why is Bluestone so expensive? 
And should I get thermally modified bluestone? I, I have all these questions. It depends. It depends on the job. I mean, I love bluestone, um, mm. but for a commercial job, I wouldn't mm. wouldn't recommend it. No. And then bluestone comes in a couple of different types. There's thermal bluestone, which is more of that that true blue color, and then there's mm. natural cleft, which is more of that like natural tone color bluestone that you might have seen. And then some of it's like cut real smooth, and then the other looks more natural. What's what's that called? Right. So there's thermal and there's natural cleft. And the natural cleft tends to have that color range and that chipping to it. All right. I like thermal. Yeah. The thermal's more Mo- It's more modern. Yeah. You know what look I actually really like is the bluestone set in the grass. And Dan and Ray did that in Southie. But um, it seems cool. It's a very West Coast-ish or Florida look. Texas. Mm-hmm. South look. Southern Southwestern look. I don't know. All right. It's well, not a Northeast a, look. Well, here's a question. We've done, uh, in an, again, in an urban setting, we've done sod. And now we just did most recently turf, artificial turf. And I know there's obviously all different kinds of artificial turf. Any preferences or any reasons to go one way or the other, again, in that urban setting? Because obviously you've got like no- carpets or is it actually- Yeah, it's it's, you know, it's not grass, but at the same time, it's green year round and- you know, techno- have- again, similar to, <clears throat> sorry, Ray, right. similar to green roofs, the turf technology has come a very long way. And I, I've, t- I took a lot of people through Emmett and a lot of people thought it was real. Hmm. Yeah. It's, it's definitely come a long way. They've, they weave in the Brown thatching to it. So it looks real. And uh, I mean, it's a great for, it's great in the city because, you know, you're dealing with really harsh conditions. You're dealing with lots of shade. It's great on roof decks. So yeah, no, I, I, I use it all the time. Nice. Yeah. We had, we did, as I mentioned, we've done sod a a number of times. I just feel like a, you've got the maintenance B who's going to keep a lawnmower around to cut, you know, 50 square feet. (laughs) And then if it rains out a lot, it can get real mushy. And so that was kind of some feedback that we had gotten. And I think we've ultimately decided that going forward, we're going to keep doing turf in those applications or a turf paver combo, that sort of thing. As nice as a yard is, but. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense, especially for small families with children to, to not have to worry about you know, mowing and fertilizer. I think it makes a lot of sense. Mike, tell us about the growth of your business, man. I feel like it's gone hockey stick style. You were a sole proprietor. I remember having dinner together like a year ago. Where you're like, I'm so goddamn busy. I should, I should hire someone. I'm thinking about it, but... And now all of a sudden you have like a team of six and uh, you guys are super busy and doing really well. So what's that been like? You know, yeah, as of last year, it was just me. And then uh, in February of 2020, I brought on Nick. And then from there, I think all of the networking I had done over the past like six years finally kicked in. And we, were, we just experienced this amazing growth. You know, like I said, we've been very fortunate of all the industries that have suffered with COVID. We thrived, and especially with the single family residential work. Uh, at first, you know, I thought that, you know, last March, I thought the commercial work and the office work was going to die, but it ended up actually, you know, all coming back. And I think that, that combined with just the, all the, the networking we did, networking we did over the past you know, six years has really contributed to, you know, us getting really busy this year. You're, you're exceptionally good at networking. I feel like uh, you've made it a point to like get out there and meet a ton of different people and always be helpful to others. And so that's just uh, that's a real compliment. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I think that building relationships and having you know good relationships with people is the the foundation of 
really any business, right? Especially any service business. Do you have any suggestions uh, or tips or lessons learned while kind of growing and expanding your business so quickly? Are there things that you should look out for or things that you should be careful about? Any personal lessons learned on your end that you would not do in the, in the future? One of the best things you could do is definitely get a good accountant. Um, we have a great accountant that's, that's our age and he takes the time to answer the phone. Any, anytime we call him, he answers the phone, he talks. I think that's really helpful and they'll, they'll guide you and any of the questions you might have with that growth. Also, I think, you know, if you're hiring people quickly like this, you got to make sure that you're really vetting them and hiring the right people. And I made a point not to hire anyone that was too junior. I think while, you know, financially it might seem smart, I think you actually, you really, you really can't hire those really junior people until you have a much larger firm. I think you need people that can focus on project management and focus on, on client customer service. What did that hiring process look like since you basically had to build it from the ground up? How did you vet people? How did you find people? What was that process like? Yeah, well, so uh, Nick, he is somebody I worked with uh, for several years in the past. So that was a, an easy one. And then the, the, the later ones, you know, I, I advertised on Instagram. I only did one paid ad. Yeah, we brought people into the office and, and met with them. And we really looked to see what their values were, what kind of work they, they what kind of the work experience they had in the past to see if they'd be a good fit with our firm. And we've been, we've been very fortunate with the people that we've brought on. They've, they've been great. Nice. Hey, sorry to keep skipping around, but at what point do you need irrigation system, right? I always, <laughs> I always get offered that. Like the quotes come in and they're like, all right, here's your cost. It excludes irrigation. If you want irrigation, let me know. I'm like, why is this so subjective? Like, I feel like you should either need it or not. I highly recommend irrigation. I think it's, it's relatively small money. And if you don't do it, then you're going to be out there hand watering if we have a really rough summer. I mean, every the establishment period for planting is like one to two years before you can get away without having irrigation. But even then, you really should have irrigation, especially considering how low the cost is to install it. You know, you know what I did when uh, I put down some sod a few years back? I bought all of these like timers and I had a network of hoses and like those little stakes in the ground. And I had the hoses going over areas so I didn't leave an imprint on the lawn. And I was just like, I should have put an irrigation system in because this is ridiculous. But I think <laughs> I think up here, at least in our climate, it, the biggest concern is the annual maintenance of just making sure you blow it out and you don't screw it up. And I feel like half the time I'm driving around or see somebody's place, you got one of those sprinkler heads that's just shot straight up because the lawnmower chopped it off or something. So, you know, it's it, easy to fix those things. Well, yeah, I think the, you're right. The maintenance is probably the, the, the biggest concern, but otherwise the installation cost, I think, you know, on a small job, $5,000, maybe on a, a medium sized residence, it can get up to like maybe 15,000. But when you're talking about planting, maybe a hundred thousand dollars in plant material, I think, you know, you don't want to lose that material. So I think it, it's definitely worth it. Yeah. That's like the insurance policy. Now, what about if you're in uh, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but if you're in an area where you don't have municipal water, is it a separate, is it true that it's like a separate well, you need like a, an irrigation well because the, the water shouldn't get cross-contaminated. Yeah, there's places like Weston that require you to to use a well. Mike, okay. 
give us a couple best practices. You have a tree, it's a beautiful tree, and you're going to build on that lot. What are things that you need to think about in order to make sure that tree survives construction? So this sounds familiar. Well, this is assuming that you are keeping the tree and not cutting it down (laughs) because there's going to be a house there, right? Indeed. And it depends on the type of tree. (laughs) The most important thing with uh, respect to keeping trees alive is compaction. You don't want to compact the root zone because that will prohibit the tree from getting any oxygen to the roots and water to the roots. So making sure that, you know, if you're building, putting a foundation in next to a tree you want to keep, that you, you know, you rope that area off with snow fence to the least the drip line, maybe, maybe greater. Call an arborist because an arborist will, will come out usually for free to give you this advice, probably better advice than I'm going to give you, and really look at that tree and tell you, hey, is one, is it worth saving? And two, how, what's the best way to save it? Yeah. We did that. We did that on a job, Mark. We had an arborist come out because we had a an abutter that was very concerned about losing a, a precious tree. It was a weed, right? It it was a crab apple tree. Well, they, yeah, they told us that the tree was like indestructible. You could like cut it yeah. off at the stump and it would grow back. That's the arborist. <laughs> the arborist basically said it was a weed. Well, that was good for us though because we had it to was put very up some. Good for us. We had to put up some money in escrow, and I think it's still some of it is still there as like an insurance policy to the neighbor to uh, promise that we we wouldn't like destroy their tree or kill it or that sort of thing. I have a tree in the back of my property and the branches overhang where I park and birds constantly sit up there and shit on my car. So I, I called a tree guy and I wanted him to prune just the branches that exceed the property line specifically because I had in a conversation with my neighbor to the rear. This is one of these situations where the, the tree kind of straddles both properties. So what I came to understand is you're allowed to prune your property line just followed vertically up. Short story long, I come back in this office and I hear a bunch of saws going and uh, he cut the whole tree down. Oh God. <laughs> did, your neighbor, oh, no. did your neighbor lose their shit? I can't believe how cool she was about it. <laughs> did you have to put a new tree in? No. No, she was just like, basically what she said was like, all right, just, out. She goes, just stump it. She goes, you already did it. Just like, don't leave that four foot thing there. All right. Like totally reasonable wow. request. The rule of thumb is generally, like you said, you could trim to the, to the property line. However, if you just, you're really supposed to trim to the intersection of the branches. So if you just trim to the property line and, and hack it, and that actually ends up killing the tree, the neighbor could sue you for killing the uh. tree. Interesting. So you, have to be, you have to be very careful with that. And then the other thing I've come to understand is that if they have a, if there's a tree on your neighbor's property and it falls on your house, it's your insurance claim. And you can't go out to your neighbor and be like, excuse me, Mike, uh, your tree fell on my house. But if you write them a letter annually, certified mail, and you say, Mike, that tree looks like it's leaning precariously. And I have an arborist who told me it's dying. And then the tree falls on your house. Now it's his insurance problem, not yours. But that's only if the arborist says it's dying. I don't know if that's an actual, I think, do you need that? Do you, do you, you ever do, do you do that? Or is this just I just like write that fact? about every single tree around my property. <laughs> Once a year, everybody gets a letter. <laughs> Which is a good segue into overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. Where are we starting? <sighs> I kind of covered it, but I, I guess it depends on the application. But I, So I was going to say like turf, artificial Turf for grass. Appropriate. Hydro seed. Appropriate. 
Yeah, I feel like Hydro Seed's overrated, you know? Is there like a certain mix you're supposed to get? Is there like a magic mix for the Northeast? Because we had that and it just like all died. Then I found out, maybe it's just us. Then I found out from our neighbor like a year later that the developer had like scraped off all of the loam on top. So it was just, they just Hydro Seeded on top of like basic fill. So that was no good. No comment, Mike? Yeah, I, I think I think we need to get you in touch with some good contractors. Huh. This was this was this was my place that I bought a, a couple of years back. Uh, my wife and I moved, and I didn't know the difference. I just liked the house; it was nice and shiny and new. Yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of sod composite decking. I think it's appropriately appropriately rated. Wow, you're very straight down the middle here, Mike. I'm gonna yeah. try to get you off this. Okay, treadmill pools. Swim jet pools. That's what you're, is that what you're saying? It's like the one where you just like swim in place. Like the water moves like a treadmill wheel does and you have to just keep doing the breaststroke. Yeah, we have a couple of clients that are getting those installed right now. I haven't ever used one, so I don't know if I could say if they're overrated or not. Have you used them? No, I think it'd be cool though. Yeah, especially in a small pool. Like we have a, an older client in Connecticut who can't get a large pool because it's a small lot. Yeah. And they want to put one of those in. It sounds cool. Yeah. What about gunite pools? What is that? You can do like lined pools, like which are more cost effective, or gunite is that like uh, very dense concrete shot shoot it onto a wire. Oh, mesh. I see. Yeah, when they blast it on, like yeah, okay. Appropriately rated. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> All right, I'll try one. How about a? How about like an elaborate fire pit, like where you kind of take a step down and you're sitting in it, so you got to dig out the whole area, or just fire pits in general. Fire pits in general right now are, are definitely hot, especially with, um, with COVID. They're very popular. They're on back order, like a lot of the stuff. I think it's appropriate. <laughs> I think, uh, <laughs> Outdoor are you kitchens. Sorry, fire pit question. Are you allowed to do wood burning outdoor fire pits or, or certain municipalities require uh, like propane or gas only? So the city of Boston, if you're doing a, a fire pit on a roof deck, it needs to be natural, natural gas plumbed. You cannot use a propane tank. You definitely can't use wood. <laughs> well, yeah. What about, yeah. What about in a, like a backyard? Uh, if it's not on a deck, I'm not positive. I don't think they allow it. I don't think they allow fires in the city. I could be wrong. I don't know if you have like a big single family. Outdoor kitchens, Mike? Yeah, that was a good next Love one. That's a good one. Love them? Underrated? Did we get an underrated? No, no, I love them. That's appropriate. <laughs> I, I don't know if you understand. So the I think, uh, like, are we are we doing are developers doing it not enough? That would be like underrated, right? Whereas, like, they we should appreciate it more. Or I think what you want to like, do is we're doing it, out, but nobody yeah. really wants it, right? Underrated. Like, what's the zeitgeist out there? What's the popular culture think about this? And is it correct? as appropriate or is it like, no, everyone thinks they're awesome, but they're, that's overrated. I think, I think at the single family level, they're probably underrated, but at, in the multifamily realm, I think developers are probably hesitant to spend money on them. And I think they should. So yeah, underrated. Cool. I've seen a lot of people doing installing these like blackstone cooktops. They look pretty sweet. Like it's like a, I don't know. It's like a flat, like a, almost like a flat. Like oven. a griddle? Like a griddle. Outdoor griddle. The There's all is- sorts of cool, cool things you could buy for your outdoor kitchen now. Different smokers and, and griddles and pizza ovens are really big right now. Yes. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I have a buddy that got a pizza oven. It's amazing. My brother-in-law is big on the uh, green egg. It's one of yeah. those smokers. 
Um, I fully support this hobby. I, I'm the beneficiary. I have a smoker. I, the green egg is is good, but I've heard I've I haven't used it. I've heard it, it has a lot. It's a very high learning curve because oh, you could yeah. you can easily like overcook stuff with the green egg because it gets so so hot. Yeah, he doesn't just like let it sit there all day. He's like always tending to it, like adding something, sprinkling this. All right, boys. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. This was good. This, this was, was overdue. Good. We've been talking about this, but uh, how do people find you, Mike? If they have a plan, if they're going through zoning, if they need the help of an expert landscape architecture firm, where should they reach out? They could email me at michael at mdla.com. That's michael at m-d-l-a.com. Cool. We'll send you the link to buy the MDLA URL. And thank you to everyone for listening, rating and reviewing. And uh, we appreciate it. All right. Thanks, guys. See you on the next one. Cheers.